Welcome to the newest conversation at the Review of Democracy. My name is Ferenc Lotso. I am an editor at Revdam, and I have the distinct pleasure of hosting Til van Raden today. Welcome to the show, Til, and thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me, Ferenc. Great to have you back at the Review of Democracy. Til van Raden teaches modern and contemporary history at the University of Montreal, where he is the previous holder of the Canada Research Chair in German and European Studies. Til van Raden specializes in European history since the Enlightenment and is interested, among others, in the tension between the elusive promise of democratic equality and the recurrent presence of diversity and moral conflicts. His major publications include the books Jews and Other Germans, Civil Society, Religious Diversity and Urban Politics in Breslau, 1860 to 1925, which is a book from 2008, and Demokratie, eine gefährdete Lebensform, that is Democracy, a Fragile Way of Life, a book from 2019, uh, which he was kind enough to discuss with Elias Buchetman here at the Review of Democracy just last year, a conversation I can highly recommend to our listeners. Natil van Raden is publishing a new book this fall under the title Vielheit, Jüdische Geschichte und die Ambivalenzen des Universalismus, which might be translated into English as Multitude, Jewish History and the Ambivalences of Universalism. Uh, now, this new book of yours, uh, Thiel, uh, is titled Vielheit, uh, which is a word, I should say, that is rather rarely used in contemporary German. It may be translated as multitude or perhaps as plurality uh, into English. So may I ask what made you want to reintroduce this concept in such a prominent way? What would be the added uh, benefit of employing Vielheit more in the future? What might be its advantages, perhaps, over more commonly used concepts such as diversity, for instance? In contemporary conversations about difference or differences of any kind, obviously, the sort of predominant concept is diversity. And the interesting and remarkable phenomen phenomenon is that the English word diversity has made it into other European languages. So that even in, in, in Germany and Austria, uh, companies will speak about diversity management. Uh, universities have set up programs in diversity studies, um, so that, that even the English word diversity has become a kind of seemingly self-evident way of speaking about differences. Uh, I had always preferred to use the concept of Vielfalt in, in my German language publications uh, to, as, as a synonymous to diversity. Um, but as I was working uh, on this book, and going back to the source material from the 18th and 19th century uh, and looking for semantic shifts and innovations, it dawned on me that the word Vielfalt didn't really mean much in the 18th and 19th century. And so I was looking for, for 
sort of alternative languages from the time and the two concepts that struck in my struck out in the sources were vielheit plurality or multitude uh, and mannigfaltigkeit um manyfoldedness and um so that was just an empirical observation and and i was then beginning to wonder why uh an older language of vielheit gave way to a more recent language of vielfalt and when this happened and and it's obviously impossible to date semantic shifts precisely but a turning point is 1900 1920 around that the early 20th century and that's remarkable not just because vielfalt begins to replace vielheit but because we have a certain vocabulary that emerges, a vocabulary of assimilation, a vocabulary of identity, a vocabulary of uh, minority and majority as a shorthand to describe uh, cultural uh, differences, uh, that, that emerges out of that very sort of high modernist moment of 1900, 19, uh, 1920. And one of the key defining um, characteristics of this new language is its level of abstraction. So Fielheit or Mannigfaltigkeit and the older language was always used in conjunction with very specific context in a very specific, with a very specific meaning. And, and suddenly you had this highly abstract language of differences of diversity, etc. cetera. Uh, and um, so one of the reasons why I was drawn to this older language was that I felt that it might be useful to, I don't know, irritate in our contemporary conversations because we have become so used to talking about diversity, diversity, fight that it might be useful to remind readers that there's an older language that, gave, that disappeared in the early 20th century. Whether that's superior or not is a different question, but it's just a different language. And, and I feel very strongly that historians have no moral or ethical lessons to offer. But what we are good at is at irritating people and, and sort of um, irritating contemporary, uh, 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 irritate in contemporary conversations. Mm -hmm. That's very intriguing also as an understanding of the role uh, of the historical profession in, in society, if you wish. Now, a key part of your argument uh, in the book concerns the relationship between equality and the right to be different, uh, which appears to be quite central, I, I would say, also to your more general understanding of liberal democracy. And like you mentioned just now, you seem rather critically disposed uh, towards the rise of more abstract uh, political concepts and what we might call the naturalization of certain concepts like majority and minority, right? You, you devote an, an excellent chapter uh, to this question and in, in the book. So I was wondering whether, whether you could say more about why you consider this relationship between equality and difference so crucial from a liberal democratic point of view. And in what ways was this modern and contemporary understanding of concepts like majority and minority in essence part of the problem for democracy? So the starting point for me 
was always the question of how do we relate the idea of freedom or liberty to the idea of equality. And in some ways, there's an inherent tension, but that inherent tension is actually something that I think is, is an interesting point of departure to think about difference and equality and modernity more generally. So on the one hand, the idea of freedom is intimately linked to a right to be different. To be free means that you can be different from everybody else in whatever way you, you prefer. But that, of course, may be read as a kind of aristocratic conception of freedom, right? The aristocrat has the right to be whatever he or she likes to be. Um, and on the one other hand, you have the idea of equality. And the idea of equality always raises the question of what do we mean by equality? Do we also mean that we all have to be the same? And so, so there's, there's, there's a tension, but that tension is not a tension that is not productive. The, the tension is in fact productive in, in a sense because the idea of freedom in a democracy is not that certain people are free to be different, but that all citizens are free to be different. Universal equality is intimately related to the idea of universal freedom. Universal equality means that we all have the right to be different, and we all have the right to have our right to be different recognized. And this makes for a very interesting sort of tension and conversation. And so, and, and I think that, uh, um, that it, it is interesting to see how this conversation, how this, the, the way in which the tension is conceptualized is something that changes over the course of the 17th, 18th, 19th, and 20th century. Uh, the starting point, obviously, is always the idea of universal equality. The question of difference is not a big challenge as long as we all think of, a, of, of, sort of, of, of everyone as being inherently different. Uh, and in a society of estates, differences are easily navigated because there's no, there's no conception of universal equality. But once everyone is equal and free, the questions of differences and the conflicts over differences become much more intense. And, and in a sense, we can observe a similar dynamic in contemporary conversations about the meaning of equality and who has the right to be different and what does that mean in the public sphere, etc. But that's something that's been, in my view, that's been sort of at work in this tension between universal um, equality and difference since the emergence of a modern language of universal equality in, in, the, uh, in the 17th, 18th century. Now, the, the, the distinction between majority and minority is very peculiar in this context, but it doesn't emerge until the 1920s. And it makes, and it sort of reconfigures these conversations in very interesting ways. But as you said, these concepts have become naturalized. And then the question is, what does that mean?
Mm-hmm. Excellent. That's that's very interesting. And you know, I should say the book is uh, provides a very interesting combination. It's partly a political theory. Uh, there's also a lot of conceptual history in it, but you also reflect on history writing and and major challenges of writing the history of modern and contemporary Europe. And I and I wanted us to talk a bit about that because at some point in the book, you explicitly plead for placing the relationship between the particular and the universal into the center of our understanding of the past uh, you know, two centuries or so. Uh, and I, I, w- I was wondering whether you could perhaps explain what you mean by re-examining uh, this relationship and how one could really reconsider the recent history of Europe via this relationship, you know, what that would look like in more practical terms. Put very simply, the, the idea of modern Europe was informed by a triumphalist conception of the universal uh, for a long time. And this had, this had religious implications, it had political implications in the context of imperial history, colonial history, etc. Now, the idea of universalism obviously has been criticized and called into question over the past at least 40, 50 years. And and I think that a lot of the criticism is not just helpful and fruitful, but in fact valid. But there's, there's been a tendency to basically reject the idea of universalism out of hand. And, and so the question is, what is, it, is there something that we can salvage about the idea of universalism that may be useful? And one aspect of universalism is the idea of universal equality. And, but what does that mean to rescue the idea of universal equality in this context? And I think that um, one way to do this is to move beyond what I call binary oppositions. But so the the relationship between the universal and the particular is often configured as a relationship in which we have to choose between an either a universal reading or interpretation of something or a particular reading or interpretation of something. We have to choose between liberalism and communitarianism. we have to uh, choose between indigeneity and, let's say, the stranger or, or the question of migration, uh, etc. We have to choose between tradition and progress and uh, and change, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I, I think that this is this is not a very helpful way of thinking about these things, and and so. My suggestion is that we start by exploring how all of these seemingly binary categories are in fact entangled. And they're not just entangled because oppositions require, make sense because they're oppositions, but because there is no way of articulating a conception of universal equality that doesn't come from a very particular position. And the particularity then is inherent to the, you know, to the project of universalism. But it doesn't, that doesn't mean that the project of universalism is, is just a cynical ploy, but that you have a multitude 
plurality of competing universalism that can be configured as equally legitimate. And then, then the question no longer becomes, is a certain argument particular or universal? But that particular argument is both universal and particular at the same time. And that's something one can see when one looks very carefully at the meaning of, of a lot of the language that is used to articulate the universal uh, or the particular. And one of the sort of, I don't know, things that I found useful in this context was to engage post-colonial thought, but use it in a way that explores not the tension between sort of Jewish political traditions on the one hand and post-colonial traditions, but to explore the similarities between a lot of these arguments and how they, how they can be used to mutually illuminate one another and, and make the other position more, uh, more fruitful, more helpful, more thought-provoking. Great, thank you so much. I think that really goes very much to the heart of the argument of the book, if, if, if my reading is, is to some extent correct. It also shows very much what is the contemporary relevance of, of these discussions. But I wanted us perhaps also to talk about something more specific, because you have a chapter uh, in the book, which is in a sense slightly different from the others. It's the penultimate uh, chapter in the, in the collection, where you basically contrast the social organization of Jews and Catholics in 19th century Germany, right? Uh, focusing on the Kaiserreich, but also going uh, to, to discuss the decades before uh, 1871. And one of the main arguments uh, you make there is that whereas uh, Jews should be qualified as an ethnic group with open boundaries, right? In many ways integrated uh, into, into society. Uh, Catholics in fact developed and inhabited a milieu of their own. And so I was wondering whether you could tell us a bit more about the distinction, first of all, right? Why this distinction between ethnic group and milieu? What does that mean? Um, and how can you then demonstrate this really significant difference or even contrast uh, between, between the two groups? And I was really wondering more generally, you know, what motivated you to try to contrast uh, these two groups in such a way? I think in a way surprising uh, in terms of the conclusions for, for quite some of your readers, I, I imagine. So, so there's a, um, um, I don't know, maybe, so, so the language or the conceptual language is, is, is fluid and full of contradictions. And what I should say in the beginning is that the, the concept of milieu, which just means environment, can be used in very different ways. But in the context of modern German history, it was always used to describe a fragmentation of society that would threaten parliamentary politics, that would threat, threaten um, the ability to, uh, to, to evolve into a liberal civil society. And, and there, were, there were several milieus, and all of these milieus were kind of cradle to grave groups were very, very isolated, very hermetic, very closed, etc. And, and one of these milieus was uh, 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 German Catholicism. And the question 
for me was how would we what would happen if we if we started comparing uh, emancipation era post-emancipation era jewish life in germany to catholic life in germany and one of the interesting things about that comparison is that once the German empire is founded in 1871, they both have, have to respond and find a place in a emerging nation state that envisions itself as primarily Protestant. So from a certain point of view, they have to articulate a right to be different as quote unquote outsiders. And they both do that in very interesting ways, in competing ways, but they are both also sort of observing one another. So there's a history of sort of a shared history and a history of entanglement that, that, um, that, I've, that I found increasingly intriguing as I was beginning to make the argument for the comparison, because a comparison, as you know, is, can, can also be something very schematic and, and et cetera. So I think that was what was one of the sort of starting points, trying to articulate a right to be different in an emerging nation state in which these two groups were both viewed as strange, outsiders, somewhat marginal. The second thing is, 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 is a more general argument. And so over the, and it goes back to the question of diversity studies that we touched upon in the beginning. So over the past 50, 60 years, we've seen the rise, not just of diversity studies, but of ethnic studies, ethnic history, and of course, Jewish studies and Jewish history, uh, African-American studies, etc. And in all of these cases, a lot of the scholarly work that comes out of these traditions is focused on one particular group. That is a perfectly legitimate sort of scholarly strategy, but on another level, one wonders what about the relations between these groups? What happens when we, when, we, when we start understanding certain phenomena that are central to the rise of ethnic studies, ethnic history, et cetera, as something that is perhaps not identical in these different, uh, for these different groups, but there are similarities and there are striking similarities. And one of the interesting thing, obviously, is how do they articulate a right to be different? And how do they articulate a conception of the universal that includes that particular right to be different? So in a sense, I've, been very, I've become very um, um, intrigued by trying to find ways of not just comparing groups, but exploring relations, exploring shared histories, entangled histories, et cetera. And, and, and for me, the kind of, I don't know, original trigger was studying, um, studying with, with scholars, uh, historians in, in American history who in the 1950s and 1960s and 1970s had been at the, at the, the, the sort of avant-garde of trying to articulate these questions, um, such as John Hyam, um, who taught at, at Johns Hopkins um, and who really had a sort of made a lasting impression on me. So that's, I think, why this kind of strange, okay, let's think about these things in, in a comparative perspective. But, as, but, but there's something, this is the chapter that 
does it explicitly, but as in, in I try in almost all of the chapters to include perspective from, let's say, African-American studies and not just post-colonial perspectives generally, uh, and work them into the argument that tries to illuminate something about Jewish history uh, and perhaps even uh, perhaps even the other way around, but that's not for me um, to say. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, one thing that's also quite striking about the collection on a very basic level is that you place uh, Yiddish Geschichte, Jewish history, uh, into the subtitle uh, at the beginning. And it's certainly true that a part of the agenda is to re-examine Jewish history and also Jewish history writing. You know, how do we, how do we consider this subject? How do, how do we write about it? Through which concepts? And here you come to the, to the very central concepts of assimilation and acculturation. And, and I had a feeling you argue here that we should perhaps move away from a social scientific obsession, if you wish, with analytical precision and develop further our sensibility towards the history of concepts. And I think this was quite striking for me, not least because I know you've written a very thorough and very precise a social history about the Breslau Jewish community uh, back in the 19th century. Uh, and this was your first uh, major book some, some 15 years ago or so. Uh, and now, of course, you, you plead for a greater sensibility towards the history of concepts. And you also conclude that assimilation, which you know just a short while ago seemed to have, so to say, been discarded as an outdated, not very uh, precise concept, is making a comeback. And it can, in fact, be uh, a useful concept uh, not least because so much of Jewish history in modern times has been encoded via mm -hmm. the discussions around these concepts and also the shifting meanings uh, of the term uh, over time. So I wanted to ask you a last but really large uh, question once again uh, today, which is, which is uh, you know, what does the history of a concept like assimilation, what can it really reveal about Jewish history that all those other researches that have been so popular in recent decades uh, that have been you know, driven, if you wish, by the logic and by the methods of the social sciences might have missed. Well, some of it is just something that is about the language of assimilation and the concept of assimilation in and of itself. So, I almost accidentally uh, stumbled across the question of whether it's possible to write a conceptual history of assimilation uh, rather than using it as an analytical concept to explore certain cultural and social phenomena. And as soon as I, as I started looking at the material, which is incredibly rich and full of contradictions, I realized that one way of making sense of that is, again, a sort of analytical move and to say that there are three different basic ideas at work in these controversies. The first is that any form of assimilation is treason, that instead of preserving a tr Jewish traditions, um, one rejects them and becomes a traitor. The second strand of argument is that assimilation is a fate and therefore unavoidable. There's nothing one can do about it. It's neither good nor bad. 
And the third was that assimilation, in fact, is a blessing. It's precisely because Jewish traditions are constantly reconfigured and, and, and sort of re-articulated um, that they retain their vitality. And, and this was, and you can't map this onto a kind of um, sort of chronology and say there's a shift from treason to blessing or vice versa, but th these are sort of competing ideas that are at work in, in languages of assimilation and that implicitly are often also at work in seemingly analytically precise definitions of assimilation. So that, that sort of was, was uh, the starting point. And then if one highlights these contradictions, the paradoxes, the ironies, uh, instead of the analytical precision, I think one gets at something that I find a, a really intriguing question, and that's the question of creativity. And, and that doesn't mean that, that authenticity, tradition, identity, uh, essence, preservation, etc., are not also interesting ways of looking at it. But if one starts by focusing on creativity, uh, it becomes obvious that a lot of the concepts that we use to describe everything that assimilation is not, authenticity, tradition, etc., are in fact highly artificial ideas that only emerge at a moment when historical shifts, changes, and forms of cultural creativity have become so, let's say, overwhelming, important, that the things that tradition, authenticity, etc., see self-evidently seem to mean have, have lost their self-evident status and have become, in a sense, problematic. So to put it very simply, there's nothing more inauthentic than the idea of authenticity, nothing more untraditional and hyper-modern than the idea of tradition, etc. And the same is true for identity, obviously. And, and, and that's why I think th this sort of interesting sort of uh, language of assimilation full of contradictions and ironies is such an interesting starting point to think about these questions. No, that's excellent. And thank you so much for discussing uh, your new book at the Review of Democracy and providing all these uh, insights still. Thank you for having me. It, the pleasure is all mine. I have been uh, hosting Til van Raden today, whose new book, Vielheit, Jüdische Geschichte und die Ambivalenzen des Universalismus offers a host of fascinating reflections on questions that are central to our conceptualizations of liberal democracy and also our understanding of modern and contemporary European history. I hope you have enjoyed our conversation about this exciting new publication. Until the next time. <laughs>